Chapter Three of *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. *The Dragon and the Raven* by G. A. Henty. Chapter Three: The Massacre at Croyland. Edmund wept sorely for some time, for he knew that his kinsman's agitation could be only caused by the death of his father. At last he approached Egbert. "'My brave kinsman,' he said, "'I need ask you no questions, for I know but too well that my dear father has fallen. But rouse yourself, I pray you. Let me bandage your wounds which bleed fast, for you will want all your strength, and we must needs pursue our way well into the forest, for with to-morrow's dawn the Danes will scatter over the whole country.' "'Yes, Egbert,' said, turning round and sitting up. "'I must not in my grief forget my mission, and in truth I am faint with loss of blood. It was well the Danes stopped when they did, for I felt my strength failing me, and could have held out but a little further.' "'Yes,' Edmund,' he continued, as the lad, tearing strips from his garments, proceeded to bandage his wounds. "'Your father is dead.' "'Nobly, indeed, did he fight. Nobly did he die.' with a circle of dead Danes around him. He, Algar, Tolly, and myself were the last four to resist. Back to back we stood, and many were the Danes who fell before our blows. Tolly fell first, and then Algar. The Danes closed closer round us. Still we fought on till your father was beaten to his knee, and then he cried out to me, Fly, Egbert, to my son. Then I flung myself upon the Danes like a wild boar upon the dogs and with the suddenness of my rush and the heavy blows of my battle-axe cut away for myself through them. It was well-nigh a miracle, and I could scarce believe it when I was free. I flung away my shield and helmet as soon as I had well begun to run, for I felt the blood gushing out from a dozen wounds, and knew that I should want all my strength. I soon caught sight of you running ahead of me. Had I found we were gaining upon you, I should have turned off, and made another way to lead the Danes aside, but I soon saw that you were holding your own, and so followed straight on. My knees trembled, and I felt my strength was well-nigh gone, when, looking round, I found the Danes had desisted from their pursuit. Oh, I grieve, Edmund, I grieve that I should have left the battle alive, when all the others have died bravely, for, save a few fleet-footed youths, I believe that not a single Saxon has escaped the fight. But your father has laid his commands upon me, and I was forced to obey, though God knows I would rather have died with the heroes on that field. "'Tis well for me that you did not, my good Egbert,' Edmund said, drying his eyes, for what should I have done in this troubled land without one protector? "'It was the thought of that,' Egbert said, that seemed to give me strength as I dashed at the Danes, and now methinks I am strong enough to walk again. Let us make our way far into the forest. Then we must rest for the night. A few hours' sleep will make a fresh man of me, and to-morrow morning we will go to Croyland, and see what the good abbot your uncle proposes to do.' Then will we to the hut where we dwelt before coming hither. We'll dig up the chest and take out such valuables as we can carry, and then make for Wessex. After this day's work I have no longer any hope that East Anglia will successfully oppose the Danes. And yet the Angles fought well, and for every one of them who has fallen in these two days fighting, at least four Danes must have perished. Have you food, Edmund, for in truth after such a day's work I would not lie down supperless? Oh, I have in my pouch here, Egbert, some cakes, which I cooked this morning, and a cape on which one of the monks of Croyland gave me. I was tempted to throw it away as I ran. 
I am right glad, Edmund, that the temptation was not too strong for you. If we can find a spring, we shall do well. It was now getting dark, but after an hour's walk through the forest, they came upon a running stream. They lit a fire by its side, and sitting down, ate the supper of which both were in much need. Wolf shared the repast, and then the three lay down to sleep. Egbert, overcome by the immense exertions he had made during the fight, was soon asleep, but Edmund, who had done his best to keep a brave face before his kinsman, wept for hours over the loss of his gallant father. On the following morning Egbert and Edmund started for Croyland. The news of the defeat at Kestevan had already reached the abbey, and terror and consternation reigned there. Edmund went at once to his uncle and informed him of the circumstance of the death of his father and the annihilation of the Saxon army. "'Your news, Edmund, is even worse than the rumours which had reached me, and deeply do I grieve for the loss of my brave brother, and of the many valiant men who died with him. This evening or to-morrow the spoilers will be here, and doubtless will do to Croyland as they have done to all the other abbeys and monasteries which have fallen into their hands. Before they come you and Egbert must be far, far away. Have you thought—' whither you will betake yourselves. "'We are going to the king of the West Saxons,' Edmund replied. "'Such was my father's intention, and I fear that all is now lost in East Anglia. "'Tis your best course, and may God's blessing and protection rest upon you.' "'But what are you going to do, uncle? Surely you will not remain here until the Danes arrive, for though they may spare other men, they have no mercy on priests and monks.' "'I shall assuredly remain here, Edmund, at my post.' as my brother Eldred and Earl Algar and their brave companions died at their posts in the field of battle. So I am prepared to die here where God has placed me. I shall retain here with me only a few of the most aged and infirm monks, too old to fly or to support the hardships of the life of a hunted fugitive in the fens, together with some of the children who had fled here and who, too, could not support such a life. It may be that when the fierce Danes arrive and find naught but children and aged men, even their savage breasts may be moved to pity. But, if not, God's will be done. The younger brethren will seek refuge in the fens, and will carry on with them the sacred relics of the monastery. The most holy body of St. Guthlac, with his scourge and psalmistry, together with the most valuable jewels and muniments, the charters of the foundation of the abbey given by King Ethelbald, and the confirmation thereof by other kings, with some of the most precious gifts presented to the abbey. Edmund and Egbert set to work to assist the weeping monks in making preparations for their departure. A boat was laden with the relics of the saints, the muniments of the king, and the most precious vessels. The table of the great altar covered with plates of gold which King Wickloff had presented, with ten gold chalices and many other vessels, was thrown into the well of the convent. In the distance the smoke of several villages could now be seen rising over the plain, and it was clear that the Danes were approaching. The ten priests and twenty monks who were to leave now knelt and received the solemn benediction of the abbot. Then, with Edmund and Egbert, they took their places in the boat and rowed away to the wood of Anserig, which lay not far from the abbey. The abbot Theodore and the aged monks and priests now returned to the church, and, putting on their vestments, commenced the services of the day. The abbot himself celebrated high mass, assisted by Brother Elfget, the deacon, the Brothers Savin, the subdeacon, and the Brothers Egelred and Weilerich, 
youths who acted as taper-bearers. When the mass was finished, just as the abbot and his assistants had partaken of the Holy Communion, the Danes burst into the church. The abbot was slain upon the holy altar by the hand of the Danish king Oskidla, and the other priests and monks were beheaded by the executioner. The old men and children in the choir were seized and tortured to disclose where the treasures of the abbey were concealed, and were also put to death with the prior and sub-prior. Turgar, an acolyte of ten years of age, a remarkably beautiful boy, stood by the side of the sub-prior as he was murdered and fearlessly confronted the Danes, and bade them put him to death with the Holy Father. The young Earl Sidrock, however, struck with the bearing of the child, and being moved with compassion, stripped him of his robe and cowl, and threw over him a long Danish tunic without sleeves, and ordering him to keep close by him made his way out of the monastery, the boy being the only one who was saved from the general massacre. The Danes, furious at being able to find none of the treasures of the monastery, broke open all the shrines and leveled the marble tombs, including those of St. Guthlac, the Holy Virgin Ethelbritha, and many others, but found in these none of the treasure searched for. They piled the bodies of the saints in a heap and burned them, together with the church and all the buildings of the monastery. Then, with vast herds of cattle and other plunder, they moved away from Croyland, and attacked the monastery of Medshamstead. Here the monks made a brave resistance. The Danes brought up machines and attacked the monastery on all sides, and effected a breach in the walls. Their first assault, however, was repelled, and Fulba, the brother of Earl Holba, was desperately wounded by a stone. Holba was so infuriated at this that, when at the second assault the monastery was captured, he slew with his own hand every one of the monks, while all the country people who had taken refuge within the walls were slaughtered by his companions, not one escaping. The altars were leveled to the ground, the monuments broken in pieces. The great library of parchments and charters was burnt. The holy relics were trodden underfoot, and the church itself, with all the monastic buildings, burnt to the ground. Four days later, the Danes, having devastated the whole country round and collected an enormous booty, marched away against Huntington. Edmund and Egbert remained but a few hours with the monks who had escaped from the sack of Croyland, for as soon as they saw the flames mounting up above the church, they knew that the Danes had accomplished their usual work of massacre, and there being no use in their making further stay, they started upon their journey. They travelled by easy stages, for time was of no value to them. For the most part their way lay among forests, and when once they had passed south of Thetford, they had no fear of meeting with the Danes. Sometimes they slept at farmhouses or villages, being everywhere hospitably received, the more so when it was known that Edmund was the son of the brave Eldorman Eldred. But the news which they brought of the disastrous battle of Kestevan, and the southward march of the great Danish army, filled everyone with consternation. The maids and matrons wept with terror at the thought of the coming of these terrible heathen, and although the men everywhere spoke of resistance to the last, the prospect seemed so hopeless that even the bravest were filled with grief and despair. Many spoke of leaving their homes and retiring with their wives and families, their serfs and herds, to the country of the West Saxons, where alone there appeared any hope of a successful resistance being made. Wherever they went, Edmund and Egbert brought by their news lamentation and woe to the households they entered. And at last Edmund said, 
Egbert, let us enter no more houses until we reach the end of our journey. Wherever we go we are messengers of evil, and turn houses of feasting into abodes of grief. Every night we have the same sad story to tell, and have to witness the weeping and wailing of women. A thousand times better were it to sleep among the woods, at any rate, until we are among the West Saxons, where our news may cause indignation and rage, at least, but where it will arouse a brave resolve to resist to the last, instead of the hopelessness of despair. Egbert thoroughly agreed with the lad, and henceforth they entered no houses save to buy bread and mead. Of meat they had plenty, for as they passed through the forests Wolf was always upon the alert, and several times found a wild boar in his lair, and kept him at bay until Edmund and Egbert ran up with spears and swords, and slew the wild beast. This supplied them amply with meat, and gave them indeed far more than they could eat, but they exchanged portions of the flesh for bread in the villages. At last they came down upon the Thames near London, and crossed the river, journeyed west. They were now in the kingdom of the West Saxons, the most warlike and valiant of the peoples of England, and who had gradually extended their sway over the whole of the country. The union was indeed but little more than nominal, as the other kings retained their thrones, paying only a tribute to the West Saxon monarchs. As Egbert had predicted, their tale of the Battle of Kestavit had aroused no feeling save that of wrath and a desire for vengeance upon the Danes. Swords were grasped, and all swore by the saints of what should happen to the invaders should they set foot in Wessex. The travellers felt their spirits rise at the martial and determined aspect of the people. "'It's a sad pity,' Egbert said to Edmund one day, "'that these West Saxons had not had time to unite England firmly together before the Danes set foot on the island. It was our divisions which have rendered their task so far easy.' Northumbria, Mercia, and East Anglia have one by one been invaded, and their kings have had to fight single-handed against them. Whereas had one strong king reigned over the whole country, so that all our force could have been exerted against the invader wherever he might land, the Danes would never have won a foot of our soil. The sad day of Kestavin showed at least that we are able to fight the Danes man for man. The first day we beat them though they were in superior numbers. The second we withstood them all day, although they were ten to one against us, and they would never have triumphed even then had our men listened to their leaders and kept their ranks. I do not believe that even the West Saxons could have fought more bravely than did our men on that day. But they are better organized, their king is energetic and determined, and when the Danes invade Wessex they will find themselves opposed by the whole people, instead of merely a hastily raised assemblage gathered in the neighborhood. They presently approached Reading, where there was a royal fortress, in which King Ethelred and his brother Alfred were residing. "'It's truly a fine city,' Edmund said as he approached it. "'Its walls are strong and high, and the royal palace which rises above them is indeed a stately building.' They crossed the river and entered the gates of the town. There was great bustle and traffic in the streets. Signings, or nobles, passed along, accompanied by parties of thanes, Serfs laden with fuel or provisions made their way in from the surrounding country, while freemen, with their shields flung across their shoulders and their swords by their sides, stalked with an independent air down the streets. The travellers approached the royal residence. The gates were open, and none hindered their entrance, for all who had business were free to enter the royal presence and to lay their complaints or petitions before the king. 
Entering, they found themselves in a large hall. The lower end of this was occupied by many people who conversed together in little groups, or awaited the summons of the king. Across the upper end of the room was a raised dais, and in the center of this was a wide chair capable of holding three persons. The back and sides were high and richly carved. A table supported by four carved and gilded legs stood before it. Two persons were seated in the chair. One was a man of three or four-and-twenty. The other was his junior by some two years. Both wore light crowns of gold, somewhat different in their fashion. Before the younger was a parchment, an inkhorn, and pens. King Ethelred was a man of a pleasant face, but marked by care and by long vigils and rigorous fastings. Alfred was a singularly handsome young prince, with an earnest and intellectual face. Both had their faces shaven smooth. Ethelred wore his hair parted in the middle and falling low on each side of the face, but Alfred's was closely cut. On the table near the younger brother stood a silver harp. Edmund looked with great curiosity and interest on the young prince, who was famous throughout England for his great learning, his wisdom, and sweetness of temper. Although the youngest of the king's brothers, he had always been regarded as the future king of England, and had his father survived until he reached the age of manhood, he would probably have succeeded directly to the throne. The law of primogeniture was by no means strictly observed among the Saxons. A younger brother of marked ability or of distinguished prowess in war, being often chosen by a father to succeed him in place of his older brothers. Alfred has been his father's favorite son. He had when a child been consecrated by the Pope as future King of England, and his two journeys to Rome and his residence at the court of the Frankish king had, with his own great learning and study, given him a high prestige and a reputation among his people as one learned in the ways of the world. Although but a prince, his authority in the kingdom nearly equaled that of his brother, and it was he rather than Ethelred whom men regarded as the prop and stay of the Saxons in the perils which were now threatening them. One after another persons advanced to the table and laid their complaints before the king. In case of dispute both parties were present and were often accompanied by witnesses. Ethelred and Alfred listened attentively to all that was said on both sides, and then gave their judgment. An hour passed, and then, seeing that no one else approached the table, Egbert, taking Edmund by the hand, led him forward and knelt before the royal table. "'Whom have we here?' the king said. "'This youth is by his attire one of noble race, but I know not his face.' "'We have come, Sir King,' Egbert said, "'as fugitives and supplements to you. "'This is Edmund, the son of Eldorman Eldred, "'a valiant signing of West Anglia, "'who, after fighting bravely against the Danes near Thetford, "'joined Earl Algar, and died by his side on the fatal field of Kestavan.' He had himself proposed to come hither to you, and to ask you to accept him as your thane, and on the morn of the battle he charged me, if he fell, to bring hither his son to you, and we pray you to accept in token of our homage to you these vessels. And here he placed two handsome goblets of silver gilt upon the table. "'I pray you rise,' the king said. "'I have assuredly heard of the brave Eldred, and will gladly receive his son as my thane.' I had not heard of Eldred's death, though two days since the rumour of a heavy defeat of the East Angles at Kestavan, and the sacrilegious destruction of the holy houses of Bardenay, Croyland, and Medeshamstead reached our ears. Were you present at the battle, 
"'I was Sir King,' Egbert said, "'and fought beside Earl Agar and my kinsman, the Eldorman Eldred, until both were slain by the Danes, and I with difficulty cut my way through them and escaped to carry out my kinsman's orders regarding his son.' "'You are a stout champion yourself,' the king said, regarding with admiration Egbert's huge proportions. "'But tell us the story of this battle, of which at present but vague rumours have reached us.' Egbert related the incidents of the Battle of Kestevan. "'It was bravely fought,' the king said, when he had concluded. "'Right well and bravely, and better fortune should have attended such valour. Truly, the brave Algar has shown that we Saxons have not lost the bravery which distinguished our ancestors, and that man for man we are equal to these heathen Danes.' "'But methinks,' Prince Alfred said, that the brave Algar and his valiant companions did wrong to throw away their lives when all was lost. So long as there is the remotest chance of victory, it's the duty of a leader to set an example of valour to his followers. But when all is lost, he should think of his country. What though the brave thanes slew each a score of Danes before they died? Their death has left their countrymen without a leader, and by that one battle the Danes have made themselves masters of the north of East Anglia. Better by far had they, when the day was lost, retreated to gather the people together, when a better opportunity presented itself, and again to make head against the invaders. It is heathen rather than Christian warfare thus to throw away their lives rather than to retreat and wait for God's time to come again, to stake all on one throw which, if lost, loses a whole people, seems to me the act of a gamester. I trust that, should the time ever come, as it is too much to be feared it will ere long, that the Danes invade my brother's kingdom of Wessex, I shall not be found wanting in courage, but assuredly, when defeated in battle, I would not throw away my life, for that belongs to our people rather than to myself, but would retire to some refuge until I could again gather the Saxons around me and attack the invaders. I like the face of the young Eldorman and doubt not that he will prove a valiant warrior like his father. My brother will doubtless assign him lands for his maintenance and yours, but if he will let me, I will attach him to my person, and will be at once a master and a friend to him. Wouldst thou like this, young Edmund?" The lad, greatly pleased at the young prince's kindness of speech and manner, replied enthusiastically that he would follow him to the death if he would accept him as his faithful thane. Had the times been more peaceful, Edmund, Alfred said, I would fain have imparted to you some of the little knowledge that I have gained, for I see an intelligence in your face which tells me that you would have proved an apt and eager pupil. But alas, in the days that are coming it is the sword rather than the book which will prevail, and the cares of state and the defence of the country will shortly engross all my time, and leave me but little leisure for the studies I love so well. There are the lands, the king said of Ebald, Eldorman of Sherborne, in Dorset. He died but last week, and has left no children. These lands I will grant to Edmund in return for liege and true service. The lad knelt before the king, and, kissing his hand, swore to be his true and faithful thane, and to spend land, goods, and life in his service. And now, the king said, since the audience is over, and none other comes before us with petitions, we will retire to our private apartments, and there my brother Alfred will present you to the fair Elswitha, his wife. The room into which Egbert and Edmund followed the king and his brother was spacious and lofty. 
The walls were covered with hangings of red cloth, and a thick brown vase covered the floor. The ceiling was painted a dark brown, with much gilding. Round the sides of the room stood several dressers of carved oak, upon which stood gold and silver cups. On a table were several illuminated vellums. At Croyland, Edmund had seen a civilization far in advance of that to which he had been accustomed in his father's abode. But he saw here a degree of luxury and splendor which surprised him. Alfred had, during his two visits to Rome, learned to appreciate the high degree of civilization which reigned there, and many of the articles of furniture and other objects which met Edmund's eye he had brought with him on his return with his father from that city. Across the upper end of the room was a long table laid with a white cloth. Ellswitha was sitting in a large gilded chair by the great fire which was blazing on the hearth. Prince Alfred presented Edmund and Egbert to her. Ellswitha was well acquainted with the Earl Dorman Eldred, as his lands lay on the very border of her native Mercia, and she received the lad and his kinsman with great kindness. In a short time they took their places at table. First the attendant brought in bowls containing broth, which they presented, kneeling to each of those at table. The broth was drunk from the bowl itself. Then a silver goblet was placed by each diner and was filled with wine. Fish was next served. Plates were placed before each, but instead of their cutting food with their own daggers, as Edmund had been accustomed to see in his father's house, knives were handed round. After the fish came venison, followed by wild boar, chickens, and other meats. After these confections, composed chiefly of honey, were placed on the table, the king and Prince Alfred pledged their guests when they drank. No forks were used. The meat was cut, being taken up by pieces of bread in the mouth. During the meal a harper played and sang. Edmund observed the decorum with which his royal hosts fed, and the care which they took to avoid dipping their fingers into their saucers or their plates. He was also struck with a small amount of wine which they took, for the Saxons in general were large feeders, and drank heavily at their meals. When the dinner was over a page brought round a basin of warm water in which lavender had been crushed, and each dipped his fingers in this and then dried them on the cloth. Then at Prince Alfred's request, Egbert again related in full the details of the two days' desperate struggle at Kesteven, giving the most minute particulars of the Danes' methods of fighting. Egbert and Edmund then retired to the royal guest-house adjoining the palace, where apartments were assigned to them. After remaining for a week at Reading, they took leave of the king and started for the lands which he had assigned to Edmund. They were accompanied by an officer of the royal household, who was to inform the freemen and serfs of the estate that by the king's pleasure Edmund had been appointed eldorman of the lands. They found on arrival that the house had been newly built and was large and comfortable. The thanes of the district speedily came in to pay their respects to their new eldorman, and although surprised to find him so young they were pleased with his bearing and manner, and knowing that he came of good fighting blood doubted not that in time he would make a valiant leader. All who came were hospitably entertained, and for many days there was high feasting. So far removed was this part of England from the district which the Danes had invaded, that at present but slight alarm had been caused by them. But Edmund and his kinsmen lost no time in impressing upon them the greatness of the coming danger. "'You may be sure,' he said, "'that ere long we shall see their galleys on the coast. When they have eaten up Mercia and Anglia they will assuredly come hither, and we shall have to fight for our lives, and unless we are prepared it will go hard with us.' After he had been at his new residence for a month, Edmund sent out messengers to all the thanes in his district, 
requesting them to assemble at a council, and then formally laid the matter before them. "'It is above all things,' he said, "'necessary that we should have some place where we can place the women and children in case of invasion, and where we can ourselves retire in extreme necessity. Therefore I propose that we shall build a fort of sufficient size to contain all the inhabitants of the district, with many flocks and herds. My cousin Egbert has ridden far over the country and recommends that the Roman fortification at Moorcaster shall be utilized. It's large in extent, and has a double circle of earthen banks. These differ from those which we are wont to build, since we Saxons always fill up the ground so as it to be flat with the top of the earthen banks, while the Romans left theirs hollow. However, the space is so large that it would take a vast labor to fill it up. Therefore I propose that we should merely thicken the banks, and should, in Saxon custom, build a wall with turrets upon them. The sloping banks alone would be but a small protection against the onslaught of the Danes, but stone walls are another matter, and could only be carried after a long siege. If you fall in with my views, you will each of you send half your serfs to carry out the work, and I will do the same, and will, moreover, pay fifty freemen, who may do the squaring of the stones and the proper laying of them. The proposal led to a long discussion, as some thought that there was no occasion as yet to take such a measure, but the thanes finally agreed to carry out Edmund's proposal. End of chapter 3. Recording by Mike Harris.